ministry in the church can be life-giving and life-changing. And in the midst of it, we all need faithful companions along the road. Welcome to Along the Road, a podcast on faith and leadership for ministry leaders of the PCUSA. Hello, church people. I am Valerie Izumi, and welcome to Along the Road Encounter. Unfortunately, my co-host Manuel Silva Esterich is unable to join us for this episode, but not to worry, we have some fantastic guests who are joining us today. I'm excited to dive in, so let's get started. On this episode, we will engage a polity conversation to explore parliamentary procedure and ask the question, is Robert's Rules of Order still relevant for our current context? Our guests today are Trisha Dykers Koenig, Associate Data Clerk and Associate Director for Mid-Council Relations in the Office of the General Assembly, and Jessica Vasquez-Torres, National Program Director for Crossroads Anti-Racism Organizing and Training. Welcome, Jessica and Trisha. Hello. Hey, good to be here. Great to have you both. One of the things that we like to do on our podcast is ask our guests to say a little bit something about themselves outside their work or ministry context. I hope that you're willing to do the same. Jessica, would you be willing to start? Yeah, so outside ministry context, right? So yes. I think I, I'll share two things. Uh, I bake bread, which is a, a bit of a, a kind of hobby I started uh, about five, six years ago. Um, and it's like, a, it's like an experimentation place for me. Uh, gets me out of my head. And I am an uh, and this is this is in honor of so many of my friends. I am an avid participant in Orange Theory, uh, which is how I remain um, balanced between my emotions and my body. So both my bread baking and my OTFing are about creating some mind body connections. Oh, I love that! I didn't under, I didn't realize that about Orange uh, Theory. I knew that you were an Orange Theory aficionado. I didn't understand the theory part of orange theory. <laughs> well, it's 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 one way that I remain connected to not it's one way I get out of my head, which I is my favorite place. Yes. Awesome. Thank you. How about you, Trisha? My current joy is my almost two year old granddaughter Lucy. And love it when people ask me for pictures and videos and I can share the joy about her growing and learning and running around. And I've got all sorts of uh, children's songs running through my head and, you know, it's earworms, but, um, but it's worth it because they remind me of her. Awesome. That's great. Do you only sing songs in English? I think most of the ones that, uh, Lucy listens to educational songs. Uh, they're mostly in English, but there are, you know, like Sesame Street, mm -hmm. uh, a few words in Spanish and perhaps some other languages that come in, but it is mostly English. I love that you do that. So do you want to say anything about your secret passion for a certain bird? And <laughs> Well, it isn't very secret, but I do love flamingos. And if you came to visit my apartment, you would see there's one, uh, the uh, suite of rooms, the bedroom and closet and bathroom that are covered with uh, flamingo art, flamingo stuffed, flamingo little tchotchkes all over the place, flamingos. So I love that. 
I absolutely love that. Well, I, wow, that's awesome. Yeah, right? So thank you so much for your willingness to share that. Not, so, I'm not so, a secret for most folks. <laughs> no, not a secret, I know, but I, I love that. And I wanted our audience to hear that. So uh, as you know, um, and as, as we share together, there are those who feel that Robert's rules can create barriers for full inclusion and well, actually barriers for full participation and inclusion and also stymie uh, open dialogue. And so that's why we wanted to have this conversation to see um, is Robert's role still relevant in this current context? There are so many conversations happening around the church, around using other models of decision-making, uh, consensus, for example. Um, but but Robert's role has stood the, te the test of time. Uh, and I wondered if you like to say a few words about that. Why don't we start with you, Tricia? I have absolutely no doubt that Robert's Rules of Order are, well, come out of white supremacy, no doubt whatsoever. Uh, I think I could say that for almost all the institutions that we deal with. However, what I'd like to emphasize is that Robert's Rules are a tool. If they are used as a weapon, then they absolutely are going to get in the way of well-being for individuals and the church. But if we use it as a tool, then I think that, that it does have a place in church life. It's, it has a place in the book of order, obviously. Uh, not that that can't change. But I like to think that it, what's important is that the attitude with which we use tools and the mm -hmm. purpose for which we're using those tools. Mm -hmm. I was just reading a little booklet that had been written by Marianne Wolf, who was uh, the guru of parliamentary procedure when many years ago I was moderating my own presbytery. Last week we had the moderators conference here and one of my responsibilities is to lead people in thinking about Robert's Rules of Order and parliamentary procedure and other ways of discerning the will of Christ, which is, of course, the purpose of our meetings. And we believe very strongly that the, what we want to do is to seek Christ's will and not our own in our best moments, and that we do that better together. And so there need to be some processes that we all understand in order to have those conversations. Marianne Wolf really talks about that aspect, which is anything can be misused, but if we use things in the right, with the right spirit and the right intention, then any tool or most any tool can be helpful, I think. Mm-hmm. What are your thoughts, Jessica? Well, I mean, I'm so I'm, first I'm sitting in appreciation, um, Tricia, of your naming uh, what it is that gathers us as people, right? That that unlike a corporation or uh, a board of directors of an organization, when a community gathers, a session, uh, a, a presbytery, um, you know, gathers, they're gathering to discern the will of God. And so that 
there is something important there for me uh, uh, as a contextualizing statement for the use of rubber rules, right? So that, because I agree, I think rubber rules is a tool. And and while I appreciate uh, the desire for people to create, to find new tools and, and have certainly strong opinions about what the usability of, of discernment and parliamentary tools are, um, and how, you know when they're helpful and not. I agree with you, Trisha, that the, the outcome is driven by our understanding of why we use them. So if I understand and approach the tool called rubber rules as a way to discern the will of God, then that might alter the way in which I deploy that tool, the ways in which I invite people into that tool, the ways in which I um, communicate uh, the parameters and the, the limitations of that tool, right? And so I think that I'm just sort of sitting and really appreciating that that piece about we we gather to discern the will of God. Um, and, and how do we, what does it mean to think about rubber rules from that perspective? I said, something I'm sitting with. Thank you. So what are some of the ways that you have seen uh, Robert's rules used well and some ways that you've seen them used um, in ways that are not helpful? Some things that we decide in councils of the church sessions, Presbytery, General Assembly are kind of routine. Some are not at all routine. And when there are really important issues that councils are dealing with that have to do with our policies about how we are in the world, how we treat other children of God, uh, and there is great conflict about those things, then it's really important how we have those conversations. One of the things that some folks don't understand about Robert's Rules is that there's a lot of flexibility under the rules to have conversations that are seem a bit more informal than, okay, somebody makes a motion, there's pro and con, and, all, and we just have to talk about that motion. You can go into other types of discussion, even within Robert's Rules. And I think oftentimes when there are very important, grave issues that are quite conflicted, it helps very much to go a little bit away from here's a motion, pro and con, into small group discussions, for example, Bible study, hearing speakers, uh, prayer, and those things can happen even among uh, in, within Robert's rules. And sometimes just let's take a recess and, and talk about this, you know, not pro and con. Um, so there's a lot of flexibility in Robert's rules. And I've seen it in particular with those types of really grave issues, people being creative about how to have the best conversation so we can really hear each other. Sometimes it is difficult if it, it's a proposition and you have to go, you're either for or against it or you're going to amend it and a lot of time spends it's spent amending things and then uh, at the end, people are so tired they never have actually discussed the main idea. That type of thing is uh, not helpful for discerning the will of Christ and for being fair.
Um, but there are ways, again, when if the leaders are willing to set it up to be thoughtful that those things can happen. Uh, one of the things I think that is a problem is that people who are good with the technique, if they want to use it to manipulate, it can be done. That's probably true of almost any technique you can name, that those who want to be manipulative uh, or use it as a power over can figure out how to do that. If we don't want to be manipulative, if we truly want to go forward thinking about what does God want in this situation, then we can use it for that purpose too. Jessica? So I, so the, um, I will admit that the, the nerd in me, um, <laughs> as I was thinking about today, did a little bit of digging into some more about rubber rules, partly to, partly to be accountable for my own sense of why do I find them unhelpful or to at least be able to articulate, like, you know, I want to test my own biases here. And so I, mm. I did a little bit of digging and, and, and found some really interesting stuff, right? And, and I want to sort of preface my response to your question, Valerie, um, on that. One, that the guy who, who comes up with rubber rules, Henry Martin Robert, um, creates rubber rules in, in the, in the, right, right as the Civil War is, uh, is ending, right? Like he's, He's reacting to something in the creation of this. Like, he's the, the son of a Baptist preacher who has this massive religious conversion and moves from being pro-slavery and owning slaves to being anti-slavery. And actively, in fact, his dad will become the president of Morehouse College, the first president of Morehouse College. And um, when I was digging into it, one of the things that I found was this really found two things that, that I would recommend. One is this really wonderful article for the podcast B-Side, for the blog B-Sides by a guy named Ken Puckett, right? Ken Puckett that writes uh, that to understand rubber rules, we have to understand that they are coming out of the Civil War and that they are, that they are really, you know, Henry Martin's Robert's reaction to the incivility and the intractability of the times. Um, he, he, he writes this, he lives up this quote from, uh, from him where he writes, the great lesson for democracies to learn is for the majority to give to the minority a full, free opportunity to present their side of the case. And then for the minority, having failed to win a majority of their views, gracefully submit and to recognize the action as that of the entire organization and cheerfully to assist in carrying it out until they can secure its repeal, right? Like, so like he is, he is, he is, the, the tool is not, is not without context. Um, and I, and I think that to me is our failure to understand its history and its context that leads to its misuse. Um, hmm. I so appreciate it, Trisha, your naming, right? Like that they are all, there is great flexibility within the use of the tool. And yet I often, I'm amazed at how we use it as a restraining jacket, as opposed to a flexible tool to move us towards discerning the will of God uh, in, in deep dialogue and conversation. Um, 
another piece that I, I find interesting, I find problematic, it's there's a piece in, in, in a, there's a, a piece that he writes, Robert uh, writes about the, the role of the, the, the need for procedure. And he, he says, well, it is important, and I quote, well, it is important that an assembly has good rules. It is more important that it be not without some rules to govern its proceedings. And so he creates this interesting distinction between good rules and some rules. And to me, that is where the misuses of rubber rules will enter. Because if the, if the outcome is that we need some rules and that we don't have to agree about whether or not they're good or bad, if what we need are some rules, then who determines what are these some rules? Who assesses them for them being good or bad? Who makes the decision um, on the processes that will surface the rules that we need? And who will evaluate them? Eh? And what impact will they have? And will we change our mind if the impact is not what we intend? And so for me, the piece about, about rubber rules that's problematic is how we don't understand the breadth of its use, the history of its use, uh, the intention of for with which they were created. And, and as a result, how they become not a process designed to lead to some kind of understanding, but instead they become a weapon that unless one knows how to yield it, automatically will exclude us from the procedure. Now, I think the third thing I'll say is that I do think in spite of our approaches and our uses, there is something about the logics of rubber rules that are just also problematic, right? That, that it is about pros and cons, that it is about majority minorities, that it is about um, losers and winners, and um, that it is about high procedural moves for a minority to even get a, a voice in. And and that's fine if every if that's fine if what we're talking about is some kind of head, like homogeneous group, but the minute you add then diversity to that picture, racial diversity, gender diversity, political diversity, then the question of who the majority is, I think, becomes much more problematic. Um, and in our church, ninety-two percent white denomination, then the questions of majority are always um, going to be in the right on the on the side of one racial majority albeit a diverse racial majority, but a racial majority nonetheless. So I think that those mm -hmm. are, we really have to struggle with those questions, I think, in thinking about the usability mm -hmm. of this rule. Um, mm -hmm. I do think, it, uh, and let me finish, I think that when they are used well, is they are used well in places that have understood that and have figured out ways of creating a level playing field on how to use the rule um, in a way that says, it doesn't matter who you are or where you come from, how you grew up, here is, here is how you use this. This is the outcomes that you're seeking. This is the ways to use the procedure relative to the discussion that we have. I think in places that it is used uh, with that kind of intentional intentionality and consciousness, I think they can operate in a way that actually create the most effective use of them, even within their own limitations. Fascinating. Any thoughts on that, Tricia? Oh, that makes a lot of sense to me. 
one of the things I like to encourage with moderators is, or, you know, the Robert Schulz would call it the chairman, but uh, we in the Presbyterian Church would call the person who's leading that meeting the moderator. I think it's the responsibility of the moderator to help the rest of the body know how to use the rules as opposed to saying, well, okay, wrong motion, you're out of order. Uh, there are ways to redirect people into the right motion, if that's what the issue is, uh, and ways for the moderator to say, okay, what we want to get to is the will of the body, understanding that the the will of the body is to discern the will of Christ. So we're trying to get to that. How are we going to do that in the way that preserves everyone's rights? How, and so I think there can be some redirecting in, in that. Um, well, okay, I think the motion that you mean is this instead of that. Um, or are, what are you trying to accomplish? Let's figure out how you can get there. Or at least in terms of what the person wants to express. It may not be that the whole body wants to accomplish that particular thing, but each individual who stands up to speak can benefit from a moderator who helps that person get that idea across in the way that the rest of the body can hear it. And it, so it really depends quite a bit on the leadership and then also on the attitude of all the participants as to whether or not they are trying to fulfill the intention of what Robert's Rules is about, which is, and I opened this under principles underlying parliamentary law in Robert's Rules of Order, the introduction. These rules are based on a regard for the rights of the majority, of the minority, especially a strong minority, greater than one-third, of individual members, of absentees, and of all of these together. So really everybody who's participating has rights, the right to know what's happening, the right to speak, the right to vote, the right to hold office if that's uh, part of, you know, in certain circumstances. Um, so one of the things about Robert's Rules is that if you're going to abridge any of those rights, it takes a higher vote, two, a two-thirds vote rather than one, uh, or rather than just a simple uh, more than half, which is a majority. Um, trying to, I think that Robert's Rules is quite consistent with the Book of Order in that the Book of Order says um, presbyters are not simply to reflect the will of the people, but rather to seek together to find and represent the will of Christ. Decisions shall be reached in councils by vote, following opportunity for discussion and discernment, and a majority shall govern. That That's in the foundations portion of the Book of Order. So Robert's rules are really quite in sync with that. Um, you have to hear everyone's voice, and sometimes the minority is uh, a prophetic voice. It doesn't always prevail. Learn parliamentary procedure when I was working for an advocacy group in a very conflictual time. And I saw... 
people try to use Robert's rules to squash voices and also experienced Robert's rules lifting up voices. I hope that we're into the lifting up and not the squashing and we can hear each other even if we don't agree. And then we go forward with the, whatever the majority has decided at that point. Not that that's the truth, but uh, and it may not be forever. But we agree that we're not going to break the fellowship because we didn't get our way. Boy, you've given the two of you have given a lot to think about. Um, one of the things that well, several things are coming to my mind, so I'll try to get through them. So first, if if so it seems to me that moderators have to have a like a broad variety of skills. I mean, you're we're looking for all kinds of abilities in moderators, but the moderator's role in um, ameliorating any kind of issues with people's usage of Robert's rules um, is important. Um, so that that speaks to training. And then I think about as Presbyterians, we should all be trained in Robert's rules. I mean, we should know how to use Robert's rules, I would think, um, in order to function in our roles, in our roles as presbyters and commissioners, et cetera. That's number one. And then number two, if you find yourself in a situation where you see the power dynamic being applied by someone or a group of people using Robert's rules, and you may not be as informed as they, how would you interrupt that? Well, you absolutely can do that uh, if you have the confidence to. Unfortunately, people who aren't as proficient in the rules and the processes may not feel like they have the freedom to do that, which is a shame. I completely agree that we should teach people these rules and the processes. And one of the things that uh, when I'm teaching Robert's Rules, I realized that I learned for the most part by watching other people do it, by going to meetings, and this is how we did it. When I started studying Robert's Rules, I had, you know, was underemployed, I had some free time. I started actually reading and taking, uh, you know, going to classes, so to speak. And I learned that some of the things that we normally do are really wrong. It, you know, not according to Robert's rules. Most of them don't matter it, that much in the outcome of things. I mean, it may be that people are a little bit overly formal, but I like to have my pet peeves of things that uh, we all assume are true and aren't and try to shatter those notions a little bit. But it really has a lot to do with the um, the attitude of the group. And I would hope that those who are more proficient in the rules would model that it's okay to ask questions. It's okay to say, stop, I, I'm confused about where we are. It's okay to say, hey, I think we've gotten off track here. Could you please explain this to me? Or how do I get, I, I, this is what I want to do. How do I get there? Unfortunately, I think some people do get intimidated and it's a group responsibility to help when that's the case. It's not always going to happen, though. I noticed that you said uh, if you have enough confidence. So in a group, and, and I want to hear what Jessica has to say to this too, in a group of, of folk 
where the minority of people, the fewer number of people are people of color or queer people, it's hard to then speak up in that. Con I mean, it's really hard to do that. So, you know, how do, how do we, and I'm curious that, to hear Jessica talk about how do we get beyond that? And I wonder, you know, we have this great book and I usually, I don't even know where mine is. I usually have it. It's a little pamphlet uh, on parliamentary procedure. I call it like a cheat sheet. It's a cheat booklet, like helping you uh, maneuver it. But maybe we need to also have some kind of similar thing, an infograph type thing um, that says here are the things that the purposeful, the purposeful interruptions that you can make <laughs> yeah. you know, so that people know that this is a thing you can do. What are your thoughts on that, Jessica? Yeah, maybe I'll start there. I have a couple of thoughts, and I'll start. I'll start with this bit about how do we interrupt that. I mean, I mean, I, one of the things that I would say, one of the problems that I would say with rubber rules is that it it invites us into a particular set of values, right? That that is, it, they're not necessarily built into rubber rules, but they're built into us, right? In our in our work at Crossroads, we talk about them as as white institutional values, right? Things like competition or dualistic thinking. Um, notions of control and dominance, like disposability. And you can see how those values are awakened or are activated in a, in a, in a parliamentary process where rubber rules is operating, um, especially one in which it is not being moderated with the commitment or the consciousness that our work here is to create a pathway for a community to hear itself deeply as it discerns, right? And so... So, you know, the minute that you enter a process of pro and con, you're going to end up in a place where it is dualistic in thinking. And a lot of the issues, whether they're simple or complex that we work with and, and are facing in the church, aren't solved by pro and con positions, right? Like they're just, they're just simply more complex than what I'm pro or against. And, and I think, mm -hmm. Trisha, you said earlier, you talked about earlier how we get then into this perfectionism of trying to get the right language in an effort to find that, like an in-between place that can meet all of the majority's needs. Um, and we get just tired of the of the crafting of the thing that we don't have the conversation we need to have, right? We get so focused on the process that we don't know how to stop the process in order to have a conversation that might facilitate or actually have the process operate in a way that yields to equity. Because I think that is one of the problems of rubber rules is that its value is about equality, not about equity, right? And an equitable system is not so much about the will of the majority, right? Because the majority by and large, historically isn't necessarily, uh, well, while the majority may be back up, while the majority may not be committed to harming a minority, the majority is committed to the majority. Right. Like, and that's, and we see that often in voting, for example, in the ways that voting happens in our society. It's not that people want to harm people of color or LGBTQIA people, but they want to protect what's theirs. They want to maintain the boundaries as they want them to be. And so, like, one of the challenges of the majority minority narrative is that it, it sets up a place that if people are not really clear about why they're in this conversation and what it is we're discerning, then it really does can awaken us into that place of protectionism or of wanting to maintain some sense of control. And I think, Valerie, that's then why it becomes a really hard place to interrupt because the, the, 
I don't often talk about energy, but I do think the energy that it generates, it's one that does not invite dissent, right? Like that, that when it invites dissent, it feels like dissent in a kind of, um, um, in a, in a much more conflictual way than it even needs to be, even though it could just be dissent in a procedural way. So I think that to mm. me, that's, that's one of the things that we have to overcome is it's our sense that, that it is always the best and that we can just interrupt it or create a different pathway or call into a different procedure that actually allow for the voices that may not be in the majority and may not even make the one third, uh, but that really matter to be heard uh, for our discernment, actually find a way in. Uh, you know, I, I also, I think it's, I do think it's really interesting. Let me say two more things. I do think it's really interesting that we wrote it into the book of order, right? Like I, I, that's the most interesting part to me. And I, and I find that interesting because, right, we say in, what is it, G10501, watch me cite the Book of Order. Uh, it literally reads, unless the congregation shall designate another parliamentary authority in its bylaws, meetings shall be conducted in accordance with the most recent edition of Robert Rules, da-da-da-da. What I wish it said is that a congregation needs to designate a parliamentary process. And that effective parliamentary process provide for the following things. Read appendix da 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 for examples of some parliamentary processes that are available to you. Right, like it would be really it would be really interesting what 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 choices we would make as a denomination if it wasn't so central to our to our organized way of life. Um, you know. Because I think that the word shall designate give us cover and it give us cover to maintain a particular tool that it isn't always, in spite of all of its gifts and potentials, doesn't always yield that. I think the last thing I, I'm curious about, I wonder even if we kept it, what would it be like if ahead of rubber rules in every session, ahead of every decision-making, we were, we were to read that we are using rubber rules to ensure that we live into the great ends of the church. And so that, uh, so that in, in and through this parliamentary process, we will be testing ourselves against, we will be using the great sense of the church as the barometer or the measure uh, to determine it's, um, it's, you know, its effectiveness in the following procedure, right? Like, so is it helping us proclaim the gospel? Is it helping us shelter and nurture and spiritual fellowship? Is it assisting us in the maintenance of divine worship? Is it supporting us in the preservation of the truth? Is it like promoting social righteousness in how we treat each other? Is it exhibiting the kingdom of heaven into the world? Like what would be different if, the, if we use the same book and wrote it back around and said, okay, this is gonna be our measurement on how we use and approach this tool. And how does that alter the use of the tool and how people feel or don't feel access to it? I think this is one of the questions that I, I always sit with when I think about how we use rubber rules. We don't have an evaluative measure for it. So we presume the tool will evaluate itself um, and the processes for evaluation and or, or to interrupt it are so hard to access that then they do simply are allowed to be without without a feedback loop 
while it is being used. We we have we may have a feedback loop for after the fact, but we don't often have a feedback loop that we can access for during. And it is during that I think that it becomes. One of the the pieces of, of my work that intersects with this con conversation is that as a national program director at Crossroads, one of the um, the pieces of work that falls often under my portfolio is to work with Presbyterian communities, um, in part because I'm Presbyterian, in part because I'm, you know, one of the people in our staff that is theologically trained. And so it makes sense that, you know, as a person who's Christian and Presbyterian and theological trained, I end up in a lot of work with with Presbyterian communities. And I'm I'm always surprised by how um how distant we hold the Book of Order, how how far from us, um, you know, and, and about the opinions that we have about it. I am never surprised anymore. I'm not going to mean to say I am. I used to be surprised. I'm not surprised anymore by how often I meet with Presbyterian leaders that have so little knowledge of the book, who don't actively engage it. And I, and I think that part of it of that has to do with our con con the conversation today about how we associate it with rubber rules or as a, you know, as a treatise on rubber rules, as opposed to a theological articulation of our polity. That the Book of Order, from my perspective, isn't a book of rules. It is a theological articulation of how we, as the Presbyterian Church USA, approaches both the Reformed tradition, but also how it approaches the theology of our governance which is something different than to say the Book of Order is an interpretation of rubber rules. And I, you know, I think that the book begins with this opening chapter on the foundations of the church, right? And like the nature of the church and the church in the context of a larger structure of Christianity. And it ends with the sort of naming the great ends of the church, the reasons why we exist and are called to be. And you would think that that's how we interpret the book, right? Like we read the first chapter and then that first chapter sort of helps us interpret everything that follows. But I feel that all too often we ignore the first chapter and then we go to all the rules that the book contains deep, you know, separated from the context, the theological, the ecclesiological context set up at the beginning of the mm -hmm. book. And, and while the book is not meant to be on changing, right? We certainly get a new book released every couple of years or whatever. Um, what we know is that it's, it's meant to be a, a, to me, it's meant to be a living document. It's meant to be this place that we are constantly like wrestling with, negotiating with, always out of that first beginning of the book, which is the foundations of the church, right? And in some ways, it's what Tricia, what you began to say at the beginning, is a tool, right? Rubber rules are an embedded tool inside that book. And while I wish that we did not center it as much as we do within the book uh, of order, but it, even there, it's meant to be used as a tool, and it is not to be used as a tool outside of the reason why we have the book to begin with, which is who we are called to be in the world and how we discern the will of God in the midst of that calling that we well, have. Well, can I just pop in? I, I can't agree more, and I hope that we use all the tools at our disposal in the spirit of the foundations. Yes. And we realize and remember at every moment who we are and, of course, whose we are. Uh, 
as we're using whatever tool there is. And Robert Schools is the one that is in the Book of Order uh, explicitly. I don't think it's the be-all and end-all of processes. It's one that most of us know a little bit about and some of us know a lot about. There could be other ones, and I don't mean to be a particular apologist for this system. I do think that having a a set of procedures that we understand that kind of everybody agrees to is helpful. Otherwise, you might have chaos and, well, I've decided today that the rules are this. Uh, wait, what? <laughs> um, so it's it's nice to have a set of them, but using them in the spirit of the Book of Order and particularly Foundations is the key to all of it. Yeah, I think. and that that's really helpful in helping us reframe how we how how we talk about uh, Robert's rules and to do it in the, in the kind of umbrella of theology of governance, right? And yeah, I mean, I, I think one thing I would add, Tricia, that you were saying, because I, I want to make sure that people understand, like I've, I have been in places where people panic at the idea that like, what do you mean we're going to abandon this, this rubber Bruce business in part because of something you said, which is, well, what, how do we organize life? Right? Like, I mean, the reason why, the reason why Roberts creates its rules it's because he's emerging from a time where we have lost a sense of what are the rules that govern our society, right? Like that the rules we had, the rules that we fought a civil right, a civil war over, were rules that in fact diminished a minority, right? Dehumanized a minority. And so, right, like so he's reflecting, it's reacting to something, and in some ways those conditions haven't shifted. And so you can't just say, well, we're gonna build a community where we just treat each other as children of the creator and that's going to be the rule because we know that there is white supremacy in the world we know that they are interests that interested often are conflictual so we know that we need something and i and i will say here having as a facilitator spend time in communities that use consensus models uh don't work with with communities that operate out of cooperative uh, values to do the work that all of them can in fact be misused mm-hmm. 100% all of them and the question then becomes not is there a perfect model that will not be misused to me the question becomes is given the models that we have the governance models we have available, whether it is rubber rules or consensus or some kind of set of principles that are guiding our discernment, that you do need to have them because it does become then the will of whoever has the most power. Um, and that when we choose them, they have to be anchored in something. They have to be, they have to be contextualized in something that is bigger than the tool itself to provide clarity and accountability to something more than just a majority or minority arrangement of community. Uh, and I think to me, the place that we, the place that we ought to spend more time thinking about at this point in the Presbyterian church is not rubber rules. I think that we have, I mean, we have to continue to educate people on how to use it. We have to build capacity, but I think the place where we need the most assistance is what are the principles upon which this is used? What are the values? that undergirded, what are the interruptions? I wanna, I wanna side with Valerie's sort of suggestion that you all need an infographic 
And we, we all need an infographic <laughs> on how to use it, but then we need a secondary infographic that is about how do you interrupt it mm -hmm. uh, when it is being used in ways that are building inequity as opposed to actually moving us to a place of clarity. Mm -hmm. And I, I wow. oh, I'm sorry, yeah. I, and I've been using the word purposeful interruption lately because I also see how people misuse interruptions. Uh, so it needs to be like faithful, right? Faithful uh, interruption. I'm sorry, Trisha, please go ahead. I just wanted to say, I would love to work on such a other kind of tool, educational infographic, however you want to phrase it. I would love to sit with Jessica and you, Valerie, and others and think, okay, how can we express to folks who are just starting, for example, new commissioners to a presbytery, for, uh, say, hey, here's the tool that the Book of Order says we use. It's a tool. Here's some ways to think about using it in the most faithful possible manner so that we remember the whole time discerning the will of Christ is what we're about, right. not getting our way about a particular item of business. Yeah, I mean, I, I'm, something that you said earlier in this conversation, Tricia, that I, that's sort of still in the back of my head is this idea that the moderator has a responsibility for ensuring that the people have access, that the people understand how to use this process, right? In order to achieve, a, you know, in order to at least get their voice out in a way that doesn't deny the body, the wisdom of a voice, right? Like, so whether it's by saying, like, what are you trying to do? Or like inviting dialogue as opposed to sort of out of order, go figure it out somewhere else and come back kind of attitude that often I hear people complaining about. And, and it, it, part of why that's still operating in my head is that I think it's connected to something, the Valerie that you just named, which is how do we interrupt then? The values that tend to permeate the process itself, if and what kinds of capacities do moderators need to have, do ruling elders uh, and teaching elders need to have um, in order to both recognize their own shaping around those values and then recognize when they're surfacing in a process, right? Because mm -hmm. if because it takes a lot of like I think that one of the challenges is that it like every human process, it requires that the people in the process um have the kind of clarity uh and awareness to say, okay, we need a timeout here. I'm listening to this debate and I hear us moving away from X do this and we're like, you know, we need a break. It's obvious that we need a break because now we're just like one-upping each other. Right. Like this is no longer a, this is no longer a discerning conversation. This is just a contest at this point. Mm -hmm. um, you need to, you need to have like the leadership, the people, the body has to have that kind of awareness. And I, so I do think that kind of, what are the critical, what are the critical skills that we need to identify? What are the, the values we want to name as being contrary to the process that we want to be in the lookout for. And what are the values we want to name the facilitate equity within the process that we want to be seeking to cultivate? What are the theological groundings? I think to me, all of that then becomes a necessary ingredient for a moderator and others in the process to create the purposeful interruptions that you're naming. I don't think us alone 
out of the goodness of our own intentions get there because the the conditioning is too powerful to win and to lose um yeah yeah you know i'm thinking about my role like when i go to orange theory and i'm on the treadmill and i'm looking at the person next to me who i don't even know and i'm trying to win <laughs> like i am like okay you've run i'm gonna run farther than you i am like why am i competing all by myself i have a silent competition <laughs> with a person i've never met who's sitting next to me who does not know you're competing with who them. does not know i'm competing against them but the minute that i see their miles and my miles i am like i have to be on top like <laughs> so <laughs> the the we are conditioned in the United States yes. to seek that kind of because it validates, because it affirms, um, and because we don't want to give up. I don't know that it's even about winning. I think we don't want the consequences of losing, mm. right? We don't want to. We don't want to lose the status or the access or the thing that we value, right? We just want to preserve a particular level of status, and so that so the preservation becomes the win. Wow. You know, Jessica, you were talking about the great ends of the church and how maybe a great process that we could use are to think, is our use of Robert's rules contributing to the great ends of the church or stifling the great ends of the church? Oh, to use like an equity primes uh, methodology. That, that, that's a possibility, yeah. I mean, and I, I love that idea. Yeah. And I think that maybe when the Book of Order says meetings will open and close with prayer, they're trying to get at something like that, that uh, we're perhaps a little bit more rote about it. Oh, yeah, wait a minute, we have to start with prayer. But what's the purpose of that prayer yes. as we begin our meetings? Is it to refocus us on our larger purpose yes. of discerning the will of Christ? And then at the end of the meeting, what's the purpose of that prayer? Oh, now we get to go home? I think it's redirecting us again. Yes. Did what we do match up with the will of Christ? And were we doing it in that spirit? And perhaps we just need to, in our uh, infographic that we're going to work on, yes, I'm remind folks about those principles and it, it really is a matter of the spirit. And I think you're, my observation is the same as yours, Jessica, that no tool is perfect and any tool can be made into a weapon. And you know, consensus processes, there are different ones, but you have to enter them with a, the right spirit or the loudest or most persistent person is going to get their way because eventually people get worn down. And it, it isn't true consensus necessarily. It's just, okay, I give up. Yeah, it's, it's like I, I, I withhold my, I've seen it happen where people go, okay, I remove my objection and that's it. Like, I, I'm yeah. not saying that I have consensus. I'm just saying I'm going to stop blocking it. And that's not consensus. Right. Yeah. So, uh, you know, any if, if any person can block, then the stubborn person is going to win, whether they're the one or not. So they're, they're actually uh, preventing the will of, the, of the majority from prevailing in that particular situation, 
which is also problematic or can be. Mm-hmm. Um, so th- there's probably no perfect tool and there aren't any perfect people. Mm-hmm. So we're going to screw up, yeah. but continually reminding ourselves about the purpose that we're there for yeah. is real important, I think. Well, and education as well, right? Because people really do need to be educated. I think if people are educated, they will be able to see what's happening, right? If you don't know, then you're not sure what's happening. You're figuring that white guy with the big voice, he knows what he's talking about. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's been in the system a long time. I'm going to trust that he has to say. You, you, If you don't have the critical analysis, you won't see that. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah. in order to have critical analysis, you need education. Yeah. And so, well, and I was going to say, I think you need particular education in the process. Right. Um, I, You know, something you said, Valerie, that I think is worth underscoring is that, and this is something that uh, both Jen Emiston wrote a blog about this a few years ago, and um, Jill Duffield uh, wrote a piece for the Presbyterian Outlook in 2020 about this. And, um, right, and it... it talks about that we we really have to acknowledge that for as long as we are a 92% white denomination, there is this extra level of responsibility that we need to take to make sure that folks that are not that have every tool necessary to have access, right? And and that accessing isn't just about being in the meeting, (laughs) like we're being at the table that the access is about being equipped with the tools that everyone else may have spent a lifetime equipped in. Mm-hmm. And I, I do think that there is, you know, if you grew up in a, in the in Presbyterian church and you grew up attending presbyteries or you made it to session at some point uh, or to a congregational meeting, right? Like who's the parliamentary person historically? Like who's the person that embodies the sort of the role of stated clerk or the role of sort of the guiding of the process and the rules. You know, they're disproportionately white, they're disproportionately male. And while that is changing, certainly, um, there is a kind of narrative that it's that we impose upon the role and the people. And, uh, and I do think that that narrative is one of the things to do some re-education around. How do you create... Um, like, like I don't, I don't. I think that every single person that participates in a con- in congregational life needs to understand parliamentary procedure. Oh, absolutely! Like mm-hmm. it, the the ruling elder, the member, and the teaching elder, right? Like that that there is something about knowing how it is that we um, arrive at the decision making uh, is as important as knowing how to interrupt it, and is then what allows us to. Uh, you know, is what allows us to then use what we are grounded for in, in the process itself and in the, and in the, and in the interruption is how we know what we're evaluating. Because if I, I can sit there and say, well, this doesn't feel like we're living the grades on the tr- ends of the church, but I don't understand the process enough right. to say how we are not living it. Right. right? Like, and so like that sense of we really do need parliamentary procedure education. Amen. Thank you for that. Well, I'm so grateful to have had the two of you on this podcast. I learned a lot, uh, and I hope that uh, our audience did as well. I'm always interested when folks uh, are 
suggesting that Robert's Rules of Order are flawed, and I don't deny that they are, about the alternatives that people would recommend. And I would like to think that I'm completely open to hearing what those alternatives might be. But sometimes I think there are folks who criticize one process without proposing a plausible other process. And that's kind of a dead end. Uh, unless we think more carefully about what it is about the process that's problematic and how we overcome those things. But I'd I'd love to have more of a conversation about that with folks who want to do something different. Yeah, let's let's talk about. Yeah, and and I can add a poll to this podcast and see if anybody we've not. That'd be great. Oh my god, I would love to see what people say. Are awesome. Well, thank you so much for spending your afternoon with me uh, and our audience and talking about this really important issue and giving us a lot to think about and some some things that we can actually implement here in the Office of the General Assembly that will be helpful, hopefully, uh, to our presbyteries and congregations. Thank you. And also with you. Okay. Bye-bye. The foundations of Presbyterian polity provide a broad framework for understanding our theology of governance and invite us to approach the tools of parliamentary procedure, and in particular, Robert's rules, in transformational ways. How might using the lens of the foundations of Presbyterian polity help us rethink how we engage Robert's Rules, parliamentary procedure, and how our meetings are conducted, as well as provide an opportunity for understanding them more broadly and deeply, and in ways that promote the great ends of the church and equity? This is not the end of this journey, siblings. We encourage you to join us in conversation about this important topic by sharing your thoughts and suggestions via the form that is linked in the description for this episode. Thank you for listening and for engaging with us. Take good care and we will see you along the road. Peace. This has been the Along the Road podcast. We look forward to crossing paths with you again soon.